Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 630 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. You can also, of course, explore the YouTube channel, but the advantage of going to batgap.com is we have different ways that we've indexed the, the interviews as a categorical index, and there's another page with a search function where you can quickly find a particular person or something. There's also a page of most popular interviews. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on the site. In fact, it's on every page. And there's also a uh, page with alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Anne Sweet. Anne lives in Sydney, Australia. Let's see, it's about 3.30 my time and on Saturday in Iowa. And it's, what is it, where you are in 9.30 in the morning and Sunday? Uh, 8.30 Sunday. 8.30. 8.30. Crack of dawn. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne has a very interesting story, which she's going to tell us. I'm not going to read her bio, but she'll just start telling her story. She also has a very useful website, I think. It's, it's called theendofseeking.org, and I'll be linking to it from her page on batgap.com. But there's a lot of really good information laid out in a systematic point-by-point way, and it's not voluminous. It won't take you weeks and weeks to read long, long essays, but what she says is just very concise, and I think based upon a lifetime, really, of um, sincere spiritual aspiration, which was fruitful for her, continues to be. You've been with a number of teachers, some of them with colorful reputations. (laughs) What was it that first sort of piqued your interest in spirituality and made you seek out some kind of teacher or teaching? I think I was a pretty unhappy young person. And um, my family situation had been quite traumatic. So I think I was looking for answers. And I saw that around me, you know, through the press and my family and society and so on, everyone seemed to be stumbling around. No one really seemed to know what was going on. And people were kind of living their mechanical lives, but no one really seemed to have the answers. And I was asking all the questions, why are we here? What's this all about? What's it all for? So there was a, I think from the unhappiness point of view, I was looking for a way out. And from inside, I was, I don't know if I could intuit something else, but I definitely wanted answers. And what really set the whole thing in motion was a book I picked up in London, which was a book of Osho in the mid seventies, or I think 1977, 78. And suddenly in these pages, were all the answers that I'd been looking for. And I'd never really been able to kind of fit into the mainstream society of wanting a job and a husband and family and so on. And he was saying, you're not here to fulfill other people's expectations. You're here to find who you truly are. I'd never heard about spiritual teachers or spiritual teachings. And this was the first exposure. I was a flame. I was absolutely a flame. And I think within a very short time, I was living in India and part of the ashram and so on. So that was the beginning for me. 
I didn't even think to look for other teachers or other teachings. I had this book of truth, what I thought was a book of truth in my hands, and that was more than enough for me. So that was the beginning. I think I was 24 or 25, something like that. Yeah, I was going to ask how you got through the 60s without having heard of other spiritual teachers and things, but you were only 14 or 15 then (laughs) in that period, so you wouldn't necessarily have heard about them. And the thing about suffering, you know, I also went through some pretty rough stuff, and a lot of people did, and I have this feeling that all is well and wisely put, and uh, in my own life, I don't think I would have been as dedicated a spiritual aspirant if I hadn't had such a rough time. And maybe not everybody needs that. Some people have a pretty smooth ride, like our friend Harry Alto that we were just talking about. But for me, at least, the contrast was so great between what I had been going through and what I began to experience as soon as I got into meditation and and spiritual things that I thought, well, this is it, and I, I never looked back. So you went to Pune, to Osho's ashram, and you ended up spending time in Oregon also. And I've interviewed quite a few people who were with Osho, including one guy who was sort of his personal bodyguard or something. I don't know. He was pretty close to him. And um, even though Osho has a rather checkered reputation, most of the people I've spoken to feel like, all right, it was worth it. It was a good thing. They don't really have any regrets, although probably many of them, like yourself, did leave before the whole thing completely fizzled out. Do you feel that way too? Is it sort of like, all right, that was an interesting experience and I, I, learned, I learned stuff. <laughs> I think if I'd been wiser and more mature, I would have chosen a different teacher for sure. One with less complexity and... Fewer Rolls Royces, maybe. Yeah, fewer Rolls Royces, a little it's bit... one or two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe none at all. And I would have gone for someone different, but that was the stage I was at too. You know, I was a kind of misfit and it was a sort of community of misfits who all came together around Osho. So there were some very beautiful aspects to the whole thing and some quite remarkable aspects. And it was wonderful to be in that, you know, thousands of young people all in this Indian ashram all meditating and dancing and working and so on. And the times with him when he was teaching were very exquisite. You know, all of that was fantastic. But there were so many deep flaws running through the whole thing and some very, very, very distasteful things, which I can't accept. I don't accept, you know, as being the right way to go about things. So my hindsight is very mixed, I would say, very mixed. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes think to myself, geez, I wish I could have had my current level of wisdom and maturity when I went through high school, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so if I'm reincarnated, maybe I will. Did you feel that Wild Wild Country was a fair representation of that whole scene? It probably didn't go deep enough into some of the less salubrious aspects of the whole thing. I think it, it gave a broad overview. I thought it was pretty accurate, but I think a lot more went on that wasn't shown that uh-huh. were negatives. Okay. I guess at some point the Titanic was sinking and you managed to get into a lifeboat and sail on to something else, right? Yes. And that something else, was that Andrew Cohen right away or did you do something else Um, in between? No, a bunch of the artists from the ranch from Oregon, we all moved east to the North Shore of Boston and had a big house together and we're trying to put our lives together. We know we'd been living 
in this ashram situation, very unworldly. None of us had really, you know, any kind of qualifications to get our lives together. We didn't have any money. It had all gone to. And that's when the sort of channeling thing just spontaneously happened. So I, I suddenly found myself in this other dimension or with access to this other dimension. So that kind of happened for a couple of years. What actually happened? Well, we were all pretty traumatized after the ranch was starting to collapse and and it was a very traumatic time. And I was with a, a girlfriend, a friend of mine in an ice cream parlor somewhere, you know, near Boston. And she was pouring her heart out and saying, oh, I don't know what to do. And my family's fallen apart and I, I have no way of making a living and so on. And we were eating ice cream and I felt my eyes close and this deep, it was almost like a deep slumber, but it wasn't a slumber. It was as though I was falling into the very center of my being and I couldn't keep my eyes open. This voice that wasn't mine came out of me and started telling her, just giving her a kind of broad view on who she was and very gently, very kindly, very uninvasively, not telling her what to do, but just framing the whole thing and making it easy for her to see what the next steps might be. And this, I don't know how long it went on for, maybe 15 minutes or something. And I opened my eyes and both of our ice creams had melted. <laughs> just staring at each other going, what on earth was that? You know, but it was very exciting because it, it totally spoke to her. It was absolutely accurate for yeah. where she was and what was happening. So we went home and I experimented on everyone in the house to <laughs> see if this would happen again. And it did, it did. And the entity who came through me or whatever, they started to train me on how to be grounded in the whole thing and who they were and what it was all about. So I just naturally did that for a couple of years. People, you know, I didn't have to advertise. People just came. And, did you manage to make a living at it? I did, yeah. Oh, I did. So there's your solution to that, right? That was, <laughs> <laughs> I was also working as an artist, so I had these right. two different things, yeah. Who was the entity? Who did they say they were? The final group of entities that I worked with, they called themselves Entity Caleth. So it was a, a group that came through as one voice. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I guess a lot of people who channel, and I've, I've interviewed a few channelers. I don't remember the details. I've interviewed Bashar and a few other people. I don't remember whether they it just came on like yours did or whether they tried to make something happen. But it is an interesting phenomenon and didn't seem to hurt you any, right? I always found it mystifying and I always found it terrifying because a client would come and sit in front of me and I wouldn't know them. I'd never met them before. And I had no guarantee that anything would happen, you know. So I was always incredibly nervous because I had no control over the whole situation. And then these things would come out and they would really all be amazing. They would be amazing. And the people would be incredibly grateful for that insight and so on. My mother came for a session. She was a psychotherapist and a university lecturer and, and very suspicious of this whole thing that I was doing. I couldn't understand it. I also didn't understand it, so I wasn't very helpful in explaining it to her. They talked about her in a way that I had no, I didn't know all those things about her psychology and who she was as a person. But what happened was I, I kind of ended up not being very part of the earth. Got too ungrounded. Yeah, we became very ungrounded and part of a different sphere and quite fragile physically, I think, as well. And also 
that particular realm or dimension or sphere, again, I don't know very much about it, contains some very negative entities as well as very positive entities. And I started getting a few sort of cyber attacks from these guys. And so it seemed to me that I didn't want to be exposed in that way. And I felt it was really time to get my feet back on the ground. So that, yeah. that came. When you were doing the channel, did you feel that you were really being taken over and as if some other intelligence was using your mind-body system and you were just back in the corner someplace uh, allowing it to happen? Absolutely. They were using my brain and my way of speaking my words, you know, my language and so on. But I didn't have the information that they had. Did you feel like you could have just said, all right, I'm quitting right now. I'm standing up. Or were you so taken over you couldn't have done that? The taking over was very beautiful. It was a very, it was a very deep meditative place. And with the entities that I was working with, it felt very, very safe. You know, it was a beautiful space for me to be in, almost a place of rest on one level. And there was never any pressure. It was always incredibly respectful. And there was no pressure put on me to continue or to do anything outside of what felt good for me. So they're beautiful. The entities were just beautiful, like best friends. And they would help me with my relationship. They would usually say it was my fault. Whatever was going on was my fault. So they became kind of a family, an odd sort of family. The first time I was on a course with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in 1970, I didn't know anything about channeling, but he went into a whole thing about it and how even though the entity might be positive and even though the information might be good, eventually it breaks down your mind-body coordination and therefore it's not conducive to your own evolution. And that's a bit of a generality, but he cautioned against it. There are a couple of people whom I've interviewed who weren't trying to channel or anything, but they're open. And one of them was long distance healer and stuff. And they both reported three people I can think of now. Yeah. They all reported being besieged by some negative entities all of a sudden. And, you know, what the heck is going on? And not quite knowing how to fend it off or, or turn it off. So, um, that's just, I guess, maybe just a cautionary note on uh, yeah. opening ourselves up to something that we may not fully understand. You don't know what you're going to get. Interesting. So what was it that ended that phase? Did it just fade away at a certain point or did you make a decision like I've done enough of this? Oh, was it because you were getting so ungrounded you thought I better stop this? Yeah, yeah. it was time to get my worldly life yeah. together. And then what? Then I think there were a few years I looked after my parents as they were ill and dying. And then I moved to Byron Bay. And that's when I came across one of Andrew's books. I'd been back to the ashram. I think I lived back in the ashram in India for another year. And I sort of saw through. It was a very mythological situation with Osho. You know, he was this mythological figure and um, there was a lot of glamour and a lot of money swishing through the ashram. And it was impossible as someone who wasn't an insight, you know, like a close disciple to kind of penetrate the mystery. But I was living in the ashram for that final year. And I kind of saw through that year, I think, satisfied. Osho had died by then, but it was finished. So the Osho thing was finished. And this book of Andrews, again, it set me on fire. I think I was really ready for a close and serious relationship with the teacher I'd been at arm's length with Osho and I really desperately wanted to get somewhere in spiritual life. And 
I was prepared to risk everything, go anywhere, do anything. I just had enough of not understanding and not realizing what this whole thing was about. So I threw myself in headfirst with the whole thing with him. And that was eight years of being with Andrew. Did you know my friend Egal Harmelin in those days? I do, yes. Yes, we've been in contact recently, yes. Yeah, he's a good guy. He was actually on Batgap years ago towards the very beginning. Okay, so obviously that whole situation eventually broke down too with controversies swirling around and, and so on. But you feel like you got a lot out of it, or did you? Again, yes and no, very, very mixed in retrospect. A lot of very positive things. I mean, to give, give oneself so totally, and he insisted that you gave yourself totally. So, you know, it was an environment where we were all operating at the highest level possible that we could all the time. We were doing enormous amounts of practice. I mean, hours every day of intense practice and meetings where it was imperative that you sort of expressed an enlightened view, whether you were enlightened or not kind of thing. So the pressure was enormous. Why would you want to do that? Was it supposed to actualize your enlightenment if you expressed one, even if you weren't? Or was it kind of one-upmanship where everybody had to sound like they're enlightened? It wasn't one-upmanship. I think it was to draw on the enlightened perspective within oneself. So you had to find a way of putting your ego aside and speak from your authentic self. And the consequences for not doing that were really severe. It was a very punishing environment. It wasn't very pleasant if you didn't manage to... Well, I mean, I heard stories about him making people stand in cold water or do other physically painful... That's the kind of thing that you're alluding to? There was that... Um, (laughs) There was quite a lot of that, but there was also a lot of shaming and making people feel really awful about themselves, like they had failed. And there was an unhealthy undercurrent to the whole thing. Seems like that would really be fodder for people with sadistic personalities who love to bully people. It would be an opportunity for them to really indulge in that tendency. Perhaps, yes. (laughs) Yes. Because I was in an encounter group one time in the late 60s, and there were certain people who were just nasty and bullied. And they, you know, the encounter group was like yelling at each other and things like that. And some people were really good at it because that's the way they were. Other people were shattered by being the recipients of that. Yes, yes. And I think a lot of people did get shattered. And I think a lot of people left feeling like they had failed as a person and failed in spiritual life. And I think that's a very unfortunate and damaging legacy to leave with people. Did Andrew sort of feel like he was uh, Latter-day Milarepa or something, and it it was uh, appropriate to treat people that way for their own ego diminishment? I think you've understood the situation very well, Rick. Andrew believed that his enlightenment was perfect and that he had no more ego to deal with, and that everything that he did and everything everything he said was coming from this profoundly enlightened place. Mm. And he had no authority over him. He'd fallen out with his guru. His guru had denied him. You can imagine the consequences, and exactly those consequences ended up playing out. So I think you've understood it very well. What do you think about his uh, efforts at atonement and rehabilitation in recent years? I think maybe initially his apologies to his ex-community were genuine, but they didn't go far enough. 
a lot of us are still very much in touch. We're in contact with each other. And there's a lot of unfinished business around Andrew. And he apologized to a few people in person, but not the majority of us. And I think very, very quickly, as soon as he started to get back on his feet a bit, I think the first couple of years when the whole thing fell to pieces was very traumatic for him and incredibly devastating as it would be and should be. But I think as soon as he started to get a little bit stronger, the desire to reclaim his position as a guru came rushing back in. I think you can't build something new. He's building a new kind of community. I don't think you can do that and still leave this enormous mess behind you. So it's incomplete for a lot of people. Yeah. You had a great quote from somebody. Was it Nisargadatta? I, I got it here in my notes someplace. Yes. You can't leave a mess behind and move on. It will pull you back. Yeah. Interesting. Which actually has, it pertains to a lot of possibilities, that quote, but it's a good one. So what was the final um, impetus for you to leave that scene? I was exhausted and I was broke. And I was trying to establish myself as an artist in London, which is a very difficult thing to do. And my health wasn't very good. And there was just this kind of disaster approaching of financial, physical, and every other way, emotional. I just didn't want to do it anymore. I'd had enough of the whole thing. And some things happened that I felt were just not right. They just weren't right. And I didn't want to be part of that anymore. This kind of impersonal, only the teachings matter, you don't matter. Some kind of cruelty to people in very vulnerable situations, in very vulnerable states. And I just felt that was so inhuman. And I just knew that if I fell into a hole like that, I would be treated the same way. And I didn't want that. And I'd also treated other people in my time the same way. You know, we were all enculturated to be very fierce and ferocious and shaming. So it was the end. I couldn't do it anymore. And so I left. Well, I'm glad you did. (laughs) (laughs) That's a syndrome that you see in spiritual groups sometimes is the ends justify the means. We have this grand, glorious, it's like the Blues Brothers. We're on a mission from God. Remember you see the Blues Brothers? It doesn't matter if there's a few casualties. You have to throw a few people overboard because our mission is so grand. It doesn't culture the heart, I'll tell you that. Absolutely not. And culturing the heart, I think, is an important aspect of spirituality. I don't know if you can be an enlightened SOB, but I don't know if you'd want to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the heart was missing completely. And then at some point you got involved with Lee Lazowick. Uh, Yes, Lee had a wonderful influence on those of us who were kind of the walking wounded from the Andrew experience. Uh He took us under his wing and very kindly just reoriented us. For us, he was a, a peer of Andrew. And so we could trust what he was saying. And he was very critical of Andrew and what had happened and his teaching methods. And he saved many of us. He just took care of the whole situation and calmed everything down. And a lot of us were able to find our feet because of him. Because when you leave a cult situation, you know, you're a mess. Basically, you're a mess. And I was definitely a mess. I couldn't quite put the two things together, you know, the the commitment that I'd had and then the fact that I'd left. And so I, I was trying to put the story together and these two realities, which were sort of crashing but for me something happened 
before I got involved with Lee that was really the turning point for me after leaving Andrew. So when I left, I was completely alone. I didn't know anybody else in England. And I was trying to establish my art career and I didn't want to move back to Australia, but I didn't know anyone. And I was horribly in debt from those years with Andrew. And I had nowhere to live because I was living in the community. So I was a complete mess, you know, emotionally and physically and mentally and so on. Anyway, I found a little room to rent and I was alone in that little room and I was alone in the studio and I didn't have anyone around to bounce off. And I was starting to fragment mentally. I could feel that I wasn't keeping it together. And that was an unknown thing for me. I'd always somehow managed to keep it together. But I realized that I was in trouble mentally. I was starting to get into some dangerous water. And so I started to meditate really more seriously than I'd ever done before because I needed to find this place of stability in myself. And the meditations, I think because I'd done so much practice for so many years, suddenly there was peace. You know, in the meditation, there was peace and stillness and there was safety from the storm. And every time I meditated, I would be back in this ground of no problem, infinite ease and calm and peace. And then I would get up and all the craziness would start again. My mind would go crazy. My emotions would go crazy. And at a certain point, I just saw that I was living in these two completely different realities, two completely different realities that didn't seem to have anything to do with each other. And I'd never investigated my experience in that way. And I, I don't think the teachings of Andrew or Osho or how I interpreted them had led me to doing that kind of investigation. And I thought, I can't be completely sane and clear and at peace one second, and then a complete mad person, the next who was afraid of losing their sanity and falling into some pit that they couldn't get out of. So only one of these can be true. Only one of these can be true which one is it? And the pressure was really building in me because I, I was literally, you know, losing my mind <laughs> with all the conflicts that I was in. And at a certain point, the pressure built to a certain point where I knew I had to make a leap. I knew I had to make a leap out of the kind of burning tower that was me, you know, and because there was no longer safety there. I had no safety in that identity anymore. And at the same time, I was as we all are, incredibly attached to this self, this personal self, this identity as this is who I am. But the house was burning down and I had to make, um, I had to make a decision. And so in the midst of, of all of this pressure and intensity, I chose that ground of peace and being as myself because it was the only stable thing and it was always available. It was always present when I chose to be there. So suddenly my whole perspective changed and my whole identity started shifting to this wellness and wholeness and completeness and fullness. And I would swing back and forth as well. You know, I would find myself back in the personal perspective, but it became less and less home for me. And I couldn't wait to get out of there because of the contraction and the constriction and the unhappiness of it. And so I gave all of my focus. And again, I had nothing else going on. I had no friends. I had no one to speak to. So all my attention for this, I guess it was a six-month period, 
went on grounding myself in this, what for me, even though it wasn't new, it was incredibly familiar to me from all those years of practice, was this still aware, open selfhood. And eventually that's where I remained and didn't flip back and forward anymore. So that was the big shift of perspective, the big shift of identity. But by then I was really burnt out with the whole spiritual thing. And I finally felt good. You know, for the first time in my life, I was happy. I was settled in myself. My seeking had come to an end miraculously. I no longer, I thought I'd fallen off the path, but I thought, well, I feel good. I don't care if I've fallen off the path. And that was enough for me, you know, after all those years of trauma and seeking and intensity to finally come into myself was an enormous resolution. And so I had no desire to be with a teacher again. The momentum of seeking with Lee was still there, but everything in me said, I'm not going near a teacher. I don't want a teacher. I'm done with this whole thing. And again, I thought it was kind of a failure on my part that I didn't want to continue seeking because seeking was my whole life but I had done it it was over for me and so for years I didn't pay any attention if I came across some sort of spiritual thing on Facebook or something I would feel physically ill you know if I came across some sort of quote from Maharishi I'd be like oh god you know so for years I couldn't bear anything to do with spirituality but were you still meditating during those years but no 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 no. okay (laughs) It's interesting that you were able to just choose. I went through a phase also where it was like swinging back and forth and it was heaven and hell and heaven and hell. But I couldn't have just chosen, or at least I didn't know I could. But eventually it smoothed out. But it's interesting that you were able to just make that choice and it actually stuck. Well, as I said, my house was burning down. It was an emergency. If I'd stayed in the same consciousness, I would have bombed out. I would have bombed out. So the risk of making that choice and of shifting that identity, if the words are clumsy, but I know you know what I mean, was less frightening than staying as I had always been. I do think that everything you had gone through prior to that got you to the point where you were able to make the choice. You wouldn't necessarily yep. have been able to make it 20 or 30 years before. Exactly. There's all kinds of spiritual practices and things that people do yes. on, on the path they can have their value, even though they're not ultimate in some sense, but they have the value as as preparatory things to get you to the point to actually cross a threshold, you know, when you're ready to, they get you ready to. Yes. I think that every tuning that you make towards your own self counts towards your eventual transformation. You build and build and build. For some people, it can happen very quickly and automatically with no prior history with it but exactly as you said it all goes towards this one thing yeah and there's also a neurophysiological thing going on where actual changes are taking place in the brain and nervous system which need to take place because what we're talking about here ultimately is a very different style of functioning and if the mind is functioning differently or the consciousness is radically different there's got to be some corresponding radical difference in the way the neurophysiology is operating Yes. You have to build those grooves. Most people have to build those. So then what? Well, then I think I became 
a little bit interested in spirit. That was maybe 10 years. And I was focusing on building my art career. And that took, again, I had no money. And uh, Is that one so, of your art pieces behind you on the wall there? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, nice. And so that was taking up enormous amounts of my energy and time. And I moved back to Australia and then met my partner. And then when life sort of settled down a bit, I started reading again. I started reading the scriptures and the teachings again. And I couldn't believe it. It was like I actually understood them. I understood them not in the way that when I had read them all those years before, they were pointing to something that I intuited but couldn't reach myself. I was longing for what they were saying, but I I wasn't there. And their words filled me with this longing and this desire for liberation, but it seemed a long way away. And then here I was reading again. I knew what they were talking, I actually knew what they were talking about from my own experience. And I thought, this is weird. This is very, very weird. And it didn't really matter which tradition or which teacher I was reading, I kind of understood where they were coming from and what they were trying to impart and how their methods might work and so on. And I understood the different arguments from the different traditions and why they were arguing those points. And it made sense to me. And I could see the truth in this and I could see the truth in that. And I thought, it's not possible that I can understand this. It's not possible that I can read these and know what they're talking about. And I thought I'd been deluded so many times in spiritual life. And I know so many people who've been deluded about their state and where they've arrived at and everything. And I thought, I'm probably deluded. You know, I'm probably completely deluded. That's this an interesting went- point that you make there, because one thing I often say is that the first thing that delusion does to you is deludes you to the fact that you're deluded. So the fact that you <laughs> thought you might be deluded is a healthy sign, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't have that insight, so I just thought I was plain old deluded. You know, I was reading ferociously again, and I wasn't finding any fault in my own understanding, but I totally doubted myself. And so there was a kind of grumpy old Vedanta teacher that I felt I could trust with my story. I really needed to know. I didn't want to get involved with the teacher, but I needed to know, am I completely off the rails? Have I actually now lost my mind, you know, and think that I'm enlightened or something? Or do I understand what I understand? Is what I understand and where I'm based the truth? So I wrote him this long letter. I'd never written to him before or been to any of his classes or retreats. And I didn't expect to hear back from him but I had to put it out there. So I I wrote this letter and I just said, this is what I understand. I don't care what you tell me, just tell me the truth. And he wrote back almost immediately, very generously and said, no, you've understood. You've understood. There may be some small areas of ignorance that you need to tackle. And, And he said, but yeah, I don't have anything more to say to you. So I thought this was amazing and quite disbelieving really, but it satisfied me. Again, that satisfied me. So I thought, okay, well, I can forget about this whole thing again. I don't need to worry about being deluded. I've understood something. I didn't put a name on that understanding. It was just like I'd understood something. I'd solved the riddle of my own existence, and that was a huge thing for me. Just for that, I was completely grateful. And the fact that it was stable and enduring and I didn't have to do anything for it was marvellous. So I just carried on not being interested in spirituality, basically. And then quite recently, maybe a year or two ago, 18 months ago or something, I hadn't really ever spoken about 
what had happened. You know, I'd maybe mentioned something about it to a close friend or what have you, but essentially I'd kept it to myself all these years because, yeah, why would you talk about stuff like that? Sounds really weird. And then, as I said, about 18 months ago, I started to really, really want to talk about all this stuff and really share with other people what their perspective was and what my perspective was. And a friend of mine, Amir Fryman, who's an author of a spiritual book and is doing a PhD on spirituality, spiritual exemplars. He was putting out these amazing things on Facebook about his process and his inquiry and being so vulnerable about his questions and how they were affecting him. And I lit up like a Christmas tree. I thought this was amazing that someone could be so vulnerable and expose themselves, especially because I'm so secretive and private. So I started to engage with him on Facebook. And then I thought, I've got to talk to him. I want to tell him my story because I know he's a a Dharma brother. I really want to share because I was bubbling over by this time with the need to engage with all of this again. And so I emailed him and asked him if he would mind that I told him my personal story. And, And he was very gracious and very respectful. So I told him my story via email and, um, he seemed to think it was very significant and he invited me to be an interviewee with his research on spiritual exemplars. And I thought this was hilarious. And I told my partner, oh, Amir thinks I'm a spiritual exemplar. We both thought it was hilarious. I didn't think that I had anything to offer Amir. I had no knowledge. I had no, you know, I wasn't carrying anything around with me of any particular value that I could relate to. And so I said yes, because I trusted him. And I thought, oh, what? why not? I expected to be made a fool of. I expected to sort of just be cringing, going, I don't really know the answers to your questions. And anyway, so he's a fantastic interviewer. I mean, he's really a wonderful interviewer. And he just kept probing. He just kept probing and asking more and more detailed questions about my experience and what I understood and so on. I was able to answer him. I was able to clearly and easily, just by going into my own experience, tell him what that experience was. And it was amazing to me to hear myself talk like that because I'd never heard myself talk like that. And I'd never asked those questions of myself. So I didn't know that I knew. I didn't know that I knew. It's not a knowing of facts, but it's a knowing through one's own being of what all of this is. And so we did a dozen or so of those formal interviews and covered a lot of ground. And it was marvellous. It was absolutely marvellous. I was still hiding out. And then he started to put some excerpts on his Facebook page. And people responded in the most full-hearted way. It was amazing. And they were just pouring themselves out with how that affected them and how that could relate to their own experience and what that meant to them. And I was at home hiding, you know, why everyone else was pouring their hearts out. And I thought, this isn't good enough. I actually have to turn up for this. And so I put a little comment at the bottom of the whole thread and said, oh, well, I'm the person he's talking about. And thank you for all of your comments. They meant a lot to me. And from that point, I slowly started to, you know, if you come out once, you have to actually have to keep coming out to all the different things. And it was excruciating because, you know, <laughs> I don't like exposure. I am a very private person. So the me that still exists inside was just cringing. And yet there was like a rolling momentum inside that was just insisting that this keep 
going forward, that does just keep going forward. And little by little, I got more used to it and more attuned to it. I still find it all weird, a bit like channeling. I find the whole thing a bit weird. Don't hide your light uh, under a bushel, Jesus said. <laughs> well, I think there are other forces at work in these situations that have their own ideas. And I guess those other forces just kept pushing me forward. Then I woke up. I don't know if I was awake or asleep. One morning about just over a year ago, I was kind of half asleep or asleep or awake. I can't remember early in the morning. And this big booming voice felt like a man's voice in my head said, you will create a website. It will be called the end of seeking and you will start immediately. And honestly, the room was just full with the sound of this voice. And I was so intimidated by it. I woke up and started making the website immediately. I literally started 10 minutes later. I had no idea how to do that or what to say or how to organize my thoughts. It was complete torture. It was absolute torture. And um, at a certain point, I just said, look, if you want me to do this, you have to help me. You have to guide me in this. I don't know how to do this. It's too complicated. It's too hard. I'm not a writer. And so I felt like I got the help I needed. Um, which was to destroy everything I'd already done and start again. And over a period of about six months, the website took shape and form. But in the process of creating the website and of writing these things down, which I really wanted to be of help to people, not muddy the water or make things more confusing for people, every word had to count for something. I didn't want any fluff. There's plenty of information out there, but I wanted this very direct, very helpful, very purposeful website. It didn't have a lot of fluff. I haven't read every word on it yet, but it's just very systematic. As I said in the beginning, bullet points, and it's it's easy to follow, and it gets right to the heart, I think, of a number of very important matters or matters that should be very important to anybody who's serious about enlightenment. Um, so I, I think you did a great job with it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So what happened is I had to examine every word is that true? How do I know that is true? Am I just going on what I've been conditioned through my own spiritual search? Or is this actually really deeply true? And suddenly everything I thought I knew was up for grabs. And I did an enormous amount of reading and self-examination and cross-examination of myself. Am I leaning this way? Am I leaning that way? And so creating the website was really like a a kind of baptism of fire for my own understanding as well, because I didn't want to put anything out there that was just coming from an unclear place. And then we're pretty much up to date. And then different people have contacted me for interviews like this, which is really beautiful. People through the website contact me for discussions and clarifications and so on really amazing people. And so I've got a kind of negative teacher idea. I'm not interested in that area, but I think you can still provide a service and be of help and offer something of value without getting involved in all of that thing. That might be a good uh, starting point for talking about some of the points that are on your website, the negative teacher idea, because obviously There have been a lot of problems with many teachers. It could be argued that perhaps they began to teach prematurely or something. You might know Mariana Kaplan. She was with Lee Laswick for a while. And her book, Halfway Up the Mountain, The Error of Premature Claims to Enlightenment, 
both the title and the, the subtitle are great. I've interviewed her a couple of times. So there's that, the premature thing. Uh, people jump into teaching and they're half-baked. And, you know, there are some traditions which say, okay, once the master certifies your enlightenment, he says, all right, now see you in a decade, and then maybe you can start teaching. <laughs> so there's no rushing into it. I think there's a two-edged sword there because sometimes when people teach prematurely, it can be disastrous not only for their students, or if not disastrous, at least a very kind of mixed blessing where there might be some benefit but also harm. And it can be a real snare for the teacher himself or herself because it can go to their heads that they're getting all this adulation and attention. And there have been a number of teachers, well-known and not so well-known, who really kind of went down the tubes as a result of biting off more than they could chew, I would say, in terms of their role as a spiritual leader. Exactly. I think to even take the care of one soul into your own hands should fill you with absolute terror. The awesome responsibility of taking even one person and guiding them spiritually should terrify you. It terrifies me. And if it doesn't terrify you, it's probably not <laughs> something you should be doing because of what's involved and what can go wrong and the harm that can be created. I think it's an, an enormously significant role that should not be undertaken except under certain very stringent conditions. Yeah. And those conditions mean that there needs to be also a higher authority over that teacher or a peer group that gives honest reflection to that teacher and that that teacher is willing to accept that reflection. And I think waiting 10 years is probably the minimum to allow all of this to integrate and to become more wise in the whole thing. Even with all of that, the temptations and the pressures on a teacher and on a teacher's ego, again, should terrify. Just you should terrify anyone who's considering taking on that role. I think you're right that it's not just that the students can be adversely affected, but it puts the teacher in a position where they have to be right. You know, they always have to be right. And it can really narrow the teacher's ability to be a free human being. If you're protecting a, a business or a reputation or having to always have the answers to everything. So I think it's a very fraught, a very fraught role to take on. There's a section on your um, website called Hallmarks of a Genuine Teacher, and it might be worth my reading these points. Must have a well-rounded, comprehensive teaching, track record of flourishing students, some of whom have awakened, no unresolved scandals, highly ethical standards and behavior, endorsed by a respected tradition, or, if self-appointed, submitting to peer review and or mentorship, Genuine humility and vulnerability and the willingness to be transparent about weaknesses or mistakes. Refuses to accept psychological transference from the student or be the subject of guru worship or dependency. Highly regarded by other well-respected teachers. Be aware, though, that teachers will often close ranks to protect each other during a crisis or scandal. Respects the student's autonomy and independence. Clean record with money and donations, no excessive lifestyle spending or overblown ambitions, does not make themselves the focus of attention, but keeps the focus on their students' evolution. As I read that list, teachers come to mind who both have lived up to those points 
and others who haven't. I heard some story, I don't know if this is true, somebody was at an Adyashanti retreat or something, and they overheard someone else saying, I can't wait to get enlightened so I can quit my job and become a teacher. It's a great responsibility. And if you believe in karma, there could definitely be karmic consequences of blowing it. If you take on that role and misuse people or abuse people or take advantage of them sexually, financially, in any other way, psychologically. So it's not something that one should rush into uh, hastily. It's like becoming a doctor or something. You know, you wouldn't want to start doing surgery after your first year of medical school. If you had any sense, you wouldn't dream of doing anything like that. Yes, exactly. And I think this is especially so for the gurus who declare themselves. What is that famous saying? There is none so untrustworthy as the self-declared guru. (laughs) And it's not always the case. It's not always the case, but I think it's a, a, a suitable warning. So I agree with you completely. And you also agree with yourself because I just read all the things. You I wrote. agree with myself. <laughs> yeah. And we're not putting down the teacher role here. We need teachers. And in a way, it's good that there are so many people now that are just teaching in small little circles. People like yourself um, who are not sitting up on pedestals and are in a more peer-to-peer way yes. are helping people. Thich Nhat Hanh said uh, it may be that the next Buddha is the Sangha. So there is this sort of more peer-to-peer dynamic taking place these days. And there are also some still big famous gurus, but the peer-to-peer thing seems to really work for a lot of people. Yes. And I, I think that maybe we're due for a bit of a revolution in this field. You know, every other area of human life in the last few hundred years has undergone tremendous change and progress, you know, like science and medicine and social changes and so on. But we've still got this old model of spirituality that's thousands of years old, you know, the teacher-student construct. And the traditions are invaluable, and I have enormous respect for them. But how effective is the methodology, really? How many people actually get through to the other side? For all the people who go into spiritual life and spend 20, 30, 40 years studying with a teacher or being part of a tradition, it seems that not that many come all the way through to the other side. I'm wondering if it's not time for new paradigms to emerge in this whole thing. You know, as you said, you know, the peer-to-peer thing, or perhaps a small group of teachers that work with a a small group of students so it's not so dependent on the personality and the flaws and the biases of a specific teacher. I would love to see new ways of passing on the timeless wisdom that are more effective and that have less negative fallout for both the teacher and the student. I really feel we're ready for an upgrade to how we go about this. Yeah, and I I think it's critical too, because, you know, I believe that the world could easily, there are at least half a dozen things I could think of off the top of my head that could eradicate humanity. And I, I really think that I've always believed that spirituality might be our saving grace. If enough people could rise to a higher level of consciousness in the world, then it would defuse or release the pressure that keeps bubbling out as war and climate change and all kinds of things that could happen. But when teachers misbehave, it kind of sabotages the enterprise. So that's another consequence. It's not only bad for students and bad for the teacher, but something so critical is taking place here and and they kind of shoot it in the foot. That's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. And I'm wondering, Rick, you know, I have thoughts about that maybe we can pull the whole thing out of the ashrams and maybe it's possible to create a technology, like a a non-mystical-based technology, where through the progress made in neuroscience and possibly with, you know, very targeted use of psychotropic drugs and some of the traditional or upgraded methodologies, meditations and so on. I know people like Jeffrey Martin are working on this and probably others. I think uh, Shinzen Yang is also working with a university on mindfulness. He's so doing I'm, stuff with Jeffrey too. Oh, he is. Okay. I didn't uh-huh. know that. In fact, Jeffrey has some kind of contraption that uses magnetic fields to yes. stimulate certain parts of the yes. brain. And yes. I saw Jeffrey one time and he had just had Shinzen at his house and Shinzen said he, he had had the best experience he had ever had using that yeah. contraption. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this is what I mean. I think all of these technologies are available, which haven't been available for 2000 years. And so, you know, that methodology has worked to whatever extent up until now. But we have a lot more access to a lot more things. And I think to harness all of that, and I think it is being harnessed, it's slowly, I think we hopefully on the brink of making the enlightenment process more streamlined, more accurate, more effective, Mm. using everything that's come before, but incorporating the new processes that are available. And I think in terms of the quickening that you're talking about with what needs to happen, it really needs to happen. And so that may be one way for that to happen. The old process is too slow moving for our current times. And culturally also, it belongs to a different place in time. Which is not to say we throw out the entire baby with bathwater because there's lots of you know valuable stuff in these old traditions, but only a new seed can yield a new crop, as they say. My respect for the traditions is enormous and irre- that what they have done and the refinement and the, the nutting out of the incredibly accurate descriptions and ways of seeing is irreplaceable. So that all has to be brought in. It would be foolish beyond belief to deny all of that that's yeah. happened in the Several people have mentioned to me recently this idea of psychoactive drugs being an important tool in this regard. And the way one person put it was, what percentage of humanity is going to either do the kind of serious study with a teacher that you've done or get onto a regular practice of meditation and stick to it like clockwork or, you know, do various other things like that and really stay with it and make significant progress? It may not be that many people, but if there could be widespread, very responsible use of psychedelics, not as an ongoing thing for people, but as a kickstart, you know, that could really open their eyes to the possibility that there's so much more to life than they had realized, springing out of perhaps the research at Johns Hopkins or NYU or Yale or one of these places, that could be a a much bigger society-wide catalyst for a huge shift in people's orientation to spirituality. Yep, absolutely. So something like that may be happening, and it does seem to be happening with the legalization of things all over the place and with the research taking place. It's, it's happening in a completely different context than it did in the late 60s. Yes, yes. The whole thing I mean, I don't the rails. I don't have any personal experience with psychoactive drugs, but I see the potential. I see the potential for breaking in the way that I broke due to circumstances, a targeted breaking of the old conditioning and the old self-perspective. 
which is then supported by everything else. Yeah, I had personal experience back in the 60s. And although I was a pretty messed up kid, but the takeaway from it, which I could never forget, was just that the way I had assumed that life is, I had just taken for granted that the way I perceived life was pretty much the way it is and pretty much the way everybody perceives it. And I got shifted into such a radically different state of consciousness that I I just realized that there's so many different possible perspectives on life that are much more profound than the average person experiences. And once I left the drug phase of my life behind and all, I could never forget that. And I, I just felt like that's really what life is all about, is realizing the full potential of what one can be and experience as a human being. It's, it's not about accumulating this thing or that thing. Yes, that's right. So anyway, we're, I'm rambling a bit, but uh, the, the idea of that being something that becomes widespread. And there are many things which have started out with a small handful of people and have eventually become the norm in society. It always works that way. Yes. And I look at the example, say, of uh, yoga and meditation, which in the 60s, it wasn't a thing and yoga wasn't a thing. And now it's ubiquitous and in the prisons and the schools and the corporate situations and so on. So my secret hope, which is not that secret, is that an enlightenment technology could also become ingrained within society, within culture, that this could be seen as a normal part of human development, not some extraordinary, exceptional thing that just happens to the few and that most people don't even believe exists, but something that is ingrained for anyone who's interested can easily access these courses and that the discourse is happening, not just in meditation halls and in the ashrams, but it's like, a new possibility for humanity for where we are now. I don't see that that's an impossibility, especially with, as we've talked about, these new understandings and new breakthroughs happening in neuroscience and in the use of psychotropics. I agree. There have been initiatives that the TM movement has done things. There's a, uh, a wonderful woman who she's teaching mindfulness and stuff in the schools on the West Coast. And mm-hmm. there are a number of programs like that. Gangaji was teaching in prisons 20 years ago. And so many of these really problematic areas, like the criminal justice system, or like the schools in the inner cities, uh, have been impacted so profoundly by these kinds of programs. Then there's usually some kind of blowback. Some fundamentalist Christians say, oh, you're trying to infiltrate Hinduism into our system here and things like that. But I think those arguments will be less and less compelling or or effective. Maybe we'll reach a critical mass at which things become really ubiquitous. And normalized and normalized. Normalized, yeah. And like you say, it will probably have to be stripped of any kind of esoteric or Eastern trappings, which it doesn't really need to have in order to be effective. It doesn't. It actually doesn't. You can always add the mysticism in after if you want. I mean, I love all the mystical side of things. But you don't have to change your name and you don't have to wear funny robes and, you know, you don't have to burn incense. I mean, there's so many things which handicap the introduction of these things because they strike people as weird. Yes. And also you usually have to take on a, a new set of beliefs. Yeah, that too. None of that is necessary. None of that is necessary. And that, I firmly believe, is what the next stage needs to be. And when you mention beliefs, what comes to mind, uh, in two weeks, I'm going to interview a guy named Joseph Selby, and he's written a book called The Physics of God, which is sort of a 
contradiction in terms in a way, because science and God, how do they fit together? But, you know, the way science works, you don't have to believe anything. In fact, you shouldn't. You can believe that perhaps this hypothesis is worth putting time and effort and money into, and it might yield some kind of result. But believing it only takes you so far. You actually have to have the empirical evidence to verify the hypothesis or disprove it. So with spirituality, it should really be the same way. And in the West, at least, spirituality or religion has been about what you believe. And mm-hmm. if, if you believe this, you're, you're saved. If you don't believe it, you're going to hell and so on. But it really doesn't matter what a person believes. What matters is what they experience. Mm-hmm. And belief only is only like a starting point. I, I believe it will be worth my doing this practice or something because then I might experience something. Yes. And that's what my website was made to do, was bring it all down into this very simple thing that we go through our lives in this contracted state often anxious and unhappy with a sense that something's missing and something's not quite right and a sense of disconnection. And we fill that hole inside with ambition and experiences and sex and money and all of those things, which only give a temporary sense of fulfillment. When all the time we have this enormous, infinite, full self that has no end, that is connected to everything, that as part of its nature, its expression is an uprising of just quiet joy and peace and love, that takes care of the existential angst that most of us carry around with us all the time. And so that is really the crux of the matter, understanding that we are not this personal sense of uh, the historical narrative conditioned self, but we are this ground of eternity. And it's really just a shift of understanding and a shift of self-investigation. It doesn't need all the trappings of Eastern mysticism. It doesn't need a whole lot, but the willingness to find out what's in there and have enough information available that you can differentiate between these different parts of yourself, the false sense of self and the reality of who you are. And that's really all it comes down to. Speaking of differentiate, how do you differentiate between understanding and experience? Because a person could pick up the Upanishads or something and and read, oh, I am that, thou art that, all this is that. Yeah, I understand that. I can kind of get it. But they're not necessarily having the same level of experience as the guy who wrote those words. For that person, presumably, it was full-blown experiential reality. Well, they go hand in hand. Experience and understanding go hand in hand. They do, yeah. And each one supports the other. And without the other, the one is going to fall over. You need both. And I think for me personally, and I think for my generation of seekers, the experiencing side was at the forefront. You know, I wanted the bliss. I wanted to have a master, a perfect master I could devote myself to. I wanted these amazing spiritual experiences. And I had all of that, but I didn't understand what they were. I had no idea. I couldn't contextualize them. So all they were were experiences. And I thought if I had enough of those experiences, I would get enlightened. And that's a myth that simply has to die. It has to die. If I'd had the understanding and the wisdom and the teaching or the understanding of the teaching that I had to 
contextualize those experiences. I had to know what they meant. I had to know how it all fit together. If I was experiencing bliss and peace and an infinite spaciousness and love, was that an aspect of my ego or was that something quite different? Was that a doorway into my own true being? But I didn't have those understandings or insights. And so I spent 30 years chasing experiences until the whole show ground into a catastrophe, you know, it ground into a catastrophe. And I was fortunate enough that I didn't fall into the bottomless pit, that I was able to make that shift of perspective, that shift of, of identity. Yeah. On the one hand, like if you, you know, read Yoga Sutras, for instance, Patanjali says yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind and then the seer rests in the self. In other words, you meditate, you go into samadhi. So you can say that's an experience and it doesn't last. And we were talking earlier about neurophysiological uh, refinement or transformation. There is something to be said for having an experience like that repeatedly because over time it stabilizes much in the way that, you know, in, in ancient India, they would dip a cloth in the dye, then bleach it in the sun, then dip it in the dye, then bleach it in the sun, go back and forth enough times, and it wouldn't lose its color even if it was in the sun. I don't know if it would be fair to say that the yogi that Patanjali is writing about is chasing experiences, but it's just a certain path where it's understood that regular, intermittent, clear glimpses of the self will eventually lead one to the point where that realization can be stabilized. It was within a context of the teachings. So the the experiences weren't just happening for their own sake. Experiencing or chasing experiencing, having these experiences wasn't just to have an amazing experience. He had a whole contextual teaching in which they were embedded. Right. And yes, you do need glimpses. You do need experiences to know what it is that you're going towards, to give faith and to give confidence that you're on the right track. I'm not against experiences. I'm against chasing experiences and not knowing what they mean so that you're on this endless road looking for experiences and looking for a kind of spiritual high. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we were talking about psychedelics a little while ago. I've I've talked to people who have friends who can't wait for the weekend because they're going to take psilocybin again and they figure maybe this time I'll break through and it'll be permanent. They're chasing experiences. Yes, yes. (laughs) I agree with what you were saying about Patanjali, that yes, all of those are significant. But again, there are two legs to this, the experience and the understanding of it. And that's what goes to make something significant and grounded and integrated possible. Yeah. And I think that's the case all the way along the the journey is the two legs are experience and understanding. You can't really make much progress if you're just trying to hop on one. Yes. Yes. In fact, Vedanta very much sides with the notion of understanding, not understanding in a merely intellectual sense, but the subtlest level of understanding being the final bridge to permanent realization. Yeah. Well, that's interesting with Vedanta because Vedanta really helped me contextualize my experience. That was what really answered a lot of my lingering questions when I had approached that grumpy old teacher. I'd gotten interested in Vedanta and it wouldn't have interested me 20 years ago because I, I wanted the highs and I wanted the love experience. I wanted the devotion and the bhakti and all the rest of it. And Vedanta, Which are also like, valid. They're valid. But again, there has to be another leg to them. But Vedanta just looked like this dry, boring textbook. You know, I thought, oh, my God. But approaching it from a, a place of 
I really want to understand how this whole thing works. What was that 30 years of seeking all about? I couldn't make sense of it. And Vedanta opened those doors for me. It gave me the ability to see the relationships between all things, myself, my true self, God, the world, and how they all kind of fit together. But in any system, no matter how refined and no matter how comprehensive, they all have their bias, they all have their blind spot. They are not reality. They are an impression of reality. And Vedanta, for all of the magnificence and the effectiveness of the teaching, has limitations. I'm going to offend all your Vedanta But I hugely respect Vedanta, but by focusing on one thing, you have to deny something else. Inevitably, and I could say that about any of the the systems and any of the traditions, because, you know, as we know, the map and the territory are not the same thing. If I had to say what the limitation of Vedanta is, and I've been studying it regularly, there's too much of an emphasis on getting out of here. This life is Maya, and you you don't want to be reborn again. Let's just get liberated and be done with it. And also, not enough emphasis for my taste on the sublime nature of divine intelligence, which is an utter miracle in in every little molecule or atom and cell. You know, it's just the whole thing. We're we're swimming in an ocean of divine intelligence, and if if that doesn't make your jaw hit the floor, then you're missing something. What a perfect thing to say. I appreciate what you just said. That totally touched me. I think I lit up like a Christian. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say one thing, just going back to Vedanta and your take on what the perhaps shortcomings or in an otherwise wonderful system. I was watching a video by Swami Savapriyananda. And he's I, the I one I've been studying Vedanta with yeah. twice a week for years now. It was a wonderful, wonderful talk. And he said, at a certain point, even Vedanta is false. At a certain point, even Vedanta is false. That you have to leave all of these things behind in order to see reality as it is. You can't carry even Vedanta with you. At that point, even Vedanta is false. That's great. That is great. That, and that is absolutely in line with what my understanding of the whole thing is as well. And once you cross the river, get out of the boat. Exactly. Now, let's talk about what crossing the river means. You have a a section on your your website here about common fallacies about enlightenment. And maybe we'll go through these and discuss them a little bit. Number one, that enlightenment is extremely rare and only for the special few. That is a fallacy, yes. And define enlightenment before we go too far, because what are we talking about? I don't know if I would even want to (laughs) 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 That's probably my least favorite word. Because it has so many different meanings to so many different people, it's almost meaningless in and of itself. I totally Um, agree. I hate to use that word. I really use it under duress. So I wouldn't attempt a definition, although I'll try if you insist. And I think I've said it in different ways throughout our talk already, that it is the effortless, persistent, unchanging knowing of oneself as all that is as the self, and that the conditioned personal historical self is seen through and seen for what it is as a conditioned self, as a false sense of self, and that is no longer in the driving seat, and that the true self, the self with a capital S, which contains all, which is all, 
is the operating system of the individual, is who that individual is. And with that, with that recognition and that being and that effortless resting in and as the self comes knowledge and intelligence and love and care and spaciousness and connectedness and intimacy with all things. It doesn't deny the characteristics of the individual. It doesn't deny that there may be deep, egoic, entrenched marks within the psyche that need to be dealt with. It doesn't indicate any kind of perfection, but what it does indicate is the stable, unchanging knowing of the truth of who we are. Do you think that the stable, unchanging knowing of the truth of who we are could possibly be just a very significant milestone and that there could be higher stages at which we might approach something more akin to perfection? having purged, you know, kinds of shadow materials that we might still have retained? Well, anything's possible. And in my experience, I feel that there are different growth spurts of enlightenment, that once you have recognized the self, you know that you are the self, that's, that's no longer a question for you, that has embedded, that is who you are. There is continued evolution. There's much more, there's much more that goes on. So it's only the beginning of a process. It's a significant and hugely important and very desirable shift from unhappiness to happiness, from incompleteness to completeness. So it's the beginning of a new life from a different place, but it's only the beginning and that continues to expand. I don't know if it's possible for there to be perfected beings. Maybe in this relative world, it seems a bit unlikely, um, but anything is, anything is possible. Anything is possible. But for me, again, I think in what I'm focusing on with the website and with other people is just to get over that first line, just get over the line. And then, you know, then the whole cosmos the whole spiritual cosmos is there to explore and it's it's an infinite field to explore and someone as we were talking about harry you know has gone an incredibly long way in exploring those further dimensions and so on so it's an ecstatic and never-ending journey so words are only useful if we agree upon their definitions we can define enlightenment just like you said it's this watershed point at which after which we know who we are and there's a world of possibilities to explore. Or yes. if we wanted to, we could say it refers to what happens after you've completely explored that whole world of possibilities. But I don't know if that is ever complete or ever could be. So enlightenment is not a particularly useful. It's a tricky word. It just has this superlative static connotation, yes. but it's, it's a good one. The byline of Bat Gap used to be conversations with spiritually awakened people. And at a certain point, we realized had to change it to awakening because at what point can you say you're awakened? You couldn't awaken further or explore deeper. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Okay, so there's some other fallacies here. Enlightenment doesn't exist. I mean, maybe this audience doesn't have a problem with that one. Again, depends on how you define it. If you define it as perfection, maybe it doesn't. And perfection means what? I mean, everybody dies of something. Maybe enlightenment is you don't die, you have a light body or you attain immortality or something, but then it gets really far-fetched. Yes, it does. Enlightenment will solve all your problems. Do you feel like you have problems? In the relative 
sphere, there are always problems. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the relative sphere. And anyone who says that enlightenment or awakening takes care of your rent or disagreement with a friend or partner or any of those things or someone taking your parking spot, these are all things that have to be dealt with as part of life. And also, I think the whole process of awakening also wakens up the sort of dormant, you know, samskaras, the dormant psychological processes that are maybe not very sound or very healthy, and they also need to be seen and integrated, understood. In other words, what you're saying is sometimes you can have a profound shift and, and even an abiding shift, and all of a sudden, all kinds of stuff starts bubbling up that you didn't even know was there. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely the case. But as far as the whole thing of problems goes, I think the difference is that before this shift of perspective, whatever you call it, I just think of it as self-recognition or solving the riddle of oneself, which is very down to earth and ordinary, that when problems arise, the problems are very immediate and you're very unprotected against them. The problems kind of hit you with no buffering. But after this shift, you're already in a very supported inner state. There's already a ground of wellness and well-being. So the problems are not so dramatic or not so impactful. And there's an ability to often, not always, to have a bit more clarity about what it will take to resolve them and so on. The problems don't go anywhere, but your relationship to them and your ability to respond to them can be different. And your equanimity tends to be greater. Yes, exactly. One handy analogy for that is, you know, let's say you only had $20 to your name and somebody gave you $5. Oh, thank you. Wow, that's huge. Or you lost $5. Oh my God, now I, I have only three quarters of what I just had. But if you were a multimillionaire, I read an article recently about this billionaire who lives in Florida and He's not living a life I wouldn't want to live. He's, he sits in front of his computer from seven in the morning till midnight doing stock trades. And he'll call his broker at noon and the broker will say, well, you're up 10 million this morning. And it's no big deal because he has billions. So what's 10 million? So in a way, it's a kind of a crass analogy, but there's an inner fullness that dawns yes. and yes. things that happen in life don't tend to add tremendously or subtract tremendously from your fullness. That's right. And there's also a deepening of trust in the whole process. There's a deepening of trust in the whole life process. And um, that is a very restful place. There is. You know that thing I said a little while ago that you liked about swimming in an ocean of intelligence, but you get to feel that this is an ocean of intelligence and that everything is unfolding in, in some kind of way that exceeds your capacity to organize there's a bigger organizing intelligence that's orchestrating things for you in a way. Yes, that's right. This is a good one, that enlightenment is always a sudden revelation. Sometimes people are just waiting for the big aha moment. Yeah. And I think that's another myth, especially we've had here in the West, you know, for the last two or three decades, that that's the only way it can happen. And that's the only real enlightenment. And I don't see that as the case at all. And I think we covered that a little bit already with you saying that each of those experiences goes to concretize or to emphasize and enlighten or illuminate the being. And so they all count for something. 
I think there are many, many ideas about enlightenment that lead people astray and that make it more possibly more difficult for people. And I'm very keen on simplifying and clarifying whatever those sort of roadblocks might be in my own small way. Yeah. Another thing which you mentioned, some people say that if you read like Bernadette Roberts or people like that, they emphasize that all sense of a personal self has been lost. And that's something I've never really been able to grok. You know, I don't see how a person could function or even get up and walk across the room unless there was some sense of a personal self. So maybe I misunderstand what she's trying to say. But from what I understand you to be saying, it's not that it is utterly lost, just that it takes a back seat. What was once the totality of your existence has just become kind of a smaller part of a much larger reality. When that change first happened, the presence or the sense of that personal self was still very much around and was more concrete. And as time has gone on, especially in this last year or so, when I think the more one exposes of this and the more one speaks about it and opens oneself up to it, which has been what has been happening in this last period, the being, the true self, really comes to dominate very, very fully. Mm -hmm. It really seems to take up the whole space. My personality hasn't changed. Like I'm still a private person and I still eat too much chocolate or whatever. So those things don't change. But the sense of self defining the an personality or the an identity is pretty well impossible. I can't grasp that person who lived that life. It's not clear to me anymore. And that's been a slow process of dissolvement, but I wouldn't say it had gone completely by any means. And I think you were right in saying that even when the sense of self disappears completely, there is still an operating mechanism. There's still a functioning mechanism. And it's interesting you said that about Bernadette Roberts. And when I first read her work, I couldn't relate to it either. And then I had an experience and it was only an experience and it was only for, I don't know, a short period of time, half an hour, or I don't know how long. I'm used to living in and as this ground of being. It's very familiar to me. It's very known to me. And I'm very comfortable with it. And then in this experience, that fell away. Actually, the self with the big S, God damn it, fell away. It actually fell away. And what was left was this pristine, stark, almost blindingly white consciousness in which there was only awareness and no self, only awareness and no self. There was no central reference point that all experience came through and was understood or what have you. There was just being. And this is for about half an hour? Yeah, for about half an hour. So in that, I saw a glimpse of what Bernadette Roberts and others have talked about. It's not my normal state by any means, but it gave me a glimpse that there is this radical, I mean, if if enlightenment, if we call it that, is a radical shift, this is probably even more radical shift out of any known sense of self or being. It's stark, it's fundamentally dimensionally different and it's quite terrifying I was like get me back to the banks of the river as soon as you know I was desperate to clamber back thankfully I was able to hold the fear at bay enough to be able to start to appreciate the pristine immaculate beauty of this state of being and ever since then 
I've kind of longed for it and wanted to return to it because it's the closest to this word perfection that I've ever come across, you know, where the worldly self of any kind and the spiritual self of any kind all fall away, all of it goes, and there's just that. Maybe that's what enlightenment is, in which case I'm not enlightened and I don't really care one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. So, I always wonder if someone's in a state like that and then they stub their toe, what happens? Obviously, it's not like Joe Schmo down the street who's experiencing pain. Somehow the pain is this localized thing. I think you can still feel the same pain because the body has its own autonomy and reality. I don't see that that would be different. But the experience would be within that field, that immaculate field, with the awareness of the pain. That would be my sense of it. Thankfully, I didn't stub my toe. There's so many stories of people like Ramana Maharshi or Ramakrishna and others who died from cancer and were apparently suffering a lot. And yet it would be revealed that they were really in bliss. And the suffering was rather apparent. There was one story Swami Sarvapiananda told where there was this old fellow kind of an enlightened sage in that tradition. And he suffered from severe asthma or something. And he was awake all night coughing and everybody could hear him. And it sounded like he was having a miserable time. And the next day, you know, someone said, well, how are you doing, sir? He said, oh, I'm absolutely marvelous. You know, just <laughs> wonderful. And this, But we heard you coughing all night. It sounded like you were really suffering. Oh, the body. Yeah, it's horrible. Body's really in bad shape, but I, I'm just doing fine. <laughs> I think that's entirely possible. That makes sense. Some questions have come in here. The first one alludes to the grumpy old man, I think. I wonder if I should ask it without mentioning his name because you didn't want to mention his name. Or Basically, the guy is wondering which of the teachings from that teacher had the most lasting impact on you. It's a bit hard to remember now because it was some years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't really have an answer at hand. I think it was more a clarification, as I said, of how the whole thing fits together, the personal self, the true self, the world and God, if you like. I never really understood how that whole thing worked. And I think Vedanta is very methodical in separating out mythia from reality, untruth from truth. So I think that was really revolutionary for me because that had been the key to my own shift it was really just the clarification of the spiritual path. It was the deep investigation into one's internal experience, which, again, I'd sort of stumbled into because of, I was in crisis. So Vedanta laid out the whole picture for me, and I was able to understand much more clearly how this whole thing works. Okay, here's a question from Andras Lohnstein in Denmark. I use writing as a prayer or meditation along with sitting. When writing, I often feel something deep coming through or becoming more clear. How do you write and do you have a ritual around your writing? Well, I can completely relate to what they're saying. Andreas? Andras, it looks like. Andras, with what Andras is saying. That's exactly my experience. I'm not a writer. And I could never have written or continue to write the volume of things that I'm writing from myself. It's just not part of, I'm an artist. I don't work through the mind. You know, it's not my thing. My process is really, I'll get an inkling of something like, is conflict a necessary part of relationship or is there another way 
of dealing with difference? Is, does conflict always have to be part of a relationship? So I'll have this idea of something working away. I didn't put it there. It put itself there for whatever reason. My mind or something got hold of it. And I won't really know the answers, but suddenly I'll get a sense that something wants to be written and I'll pull up a Word document and it will write itself. And I'll probably have to do some editing with the whole thing, but essentially it's there in its totality. And you notice that I tend to only write short pieces because I only get short bits of information <laughs> coming through. If I had to do it myself, it would be torture. It would be absolute torture. I'd be worried about every word and I wouldn't, I don't have that clear a mind to be able to put all these ideas and sentences together. So I would flounder if I was personally responsible for my writing. So thankfully, the writing comes, as Andres was saying, comes from a deeper place or somewhere else or something. Something wants to be written. Fine. I'm happy with it. I tinker with it, you know, change it a little bit here and there. Or if it's only half formed in that way, I abandon it. I don't even bother pursuing it from my point of view because I know it's going to be somehow not quite good enough. So I can relate to everything they're saying. Sounds like you're channeling again, Anne. <laughs> no, it's different. It's not about entities this time. There is a source of intelligence and wisdom that we can pull on each and every one of us. And we do. That's very much part of all of our experience. Our friend Harry Alto likes to write a lot too. He writes reams and reams of stuff and uh, somehow feels that that helps to clarify or anchor or something, the fine subtleties of his experience. Yes, it's a process of discovery because as the writing happens and as I'm reading it, I'm going, oh, that's actually, oh, I see. So I'm learning through the writing as well, very much so. Probably a lot of people can relate to this, either writing or even speaking. Let's say you're having a philosophical discussion with a friend And stuff comes out that you wouldn't ordinarily find yourself saying, but just the act of expressing brings forth something deeper. Exactly. When uh, you invited me onto the program and I thought my experience is always the same. I don't know anything. I don't have a bag of tricks. I don't have a teaching to refer to. So I can't just automatically hand something over that I can rely on that's there. And my experience is that I don't have any knowledge. I'm not carrying around any knowledge. And so it's always very intimidating to be interviewed because kind of like a bit like the channeling thing, I don't know if I can respond. I don't know if the answers are going to be there. And yet, exactly as you're saying, in the act of speaking, we draw on whatever it is that's available to us. And in the drawing of that, we also profoundly increase our understanding and we push the boundaries of our knowledge outwards. So it's incredibly important to talk, even if you don't really make sense or even if you're fumbling with it, it doesn't have to be perfect. But the very act of trying to express self is self-expressing itself and expanding and moving into new areas of understanding. And I find that very miraculous. Yeah. Any teacher will tell you that the best way to, to learn something is to teach it, even probably tennis or something like that. You, you learn something in the teaching that you don't get by just being in the student role. Yes. And I feel very much as a learner, that's why I go to Harry's group. I'm still learning. I'm still discovering. I've, there's still infinite territory for me to explore. So Yeah, me too. This is a question from my friend Raymond Schumann, who's been on Bat Gap. He's in Olympia, Washington. 
refers to Andrew Cohen. He said he had doubts about Andrew from the first of his books that he read, but at the time, his magazine was the best spiritual periodical available. And Andrew's wondering if you were involved in the What is Enlightenment magazine. No, no, I wasn't. But the best minds of the community were. And Andrew's very intelligent and he produced a remarkable magazine. So I completely agree with you. That was really a very, very valuable contribution for many years. Yeah, I subscribed to it for a while. This is a question from uh, Rob M. in Newburyport, Massachusetts, your old stomping ground if you're on the North Shore, I guess. Given your experiences with questionable teachers and cult situations, why do you think you didn't stumble into atheism since the spiritual pursuit was filled with impurity or lack of love? I think I did stumble into atheism after the the Andrew experience. I, as I said, I spent 10 or 15 years feeling nauseous at the very thought of yeah. being spiritual. So I really turned my back on the whole thing for a very long time. But I think spirit is a greater force than any of our bad experiences. And I don't like to say it because I'm trying through the website to save people from making the same mistakes that I made. But at the same time there, and I think you talked about it, Rick, there's a cohesiveness to the totality that we exist in where everything fits together. So even the bad experiences go towards some resolution, some future resolution or some important thing. It sounds a bit new agey, but it kind of feels like that. So, yes, I was very disillusioned with the whole thing for a long time. But in spite of myself, there came to be this uprising of spirit expressing itself that wouldn't be silenced, that was greater than any cynicism or disappointment that I suffered. Swami Beyondananda calls it an upwising. An uprising. <laughs> <laughs> Life is interesting. It can seem kind of unkind sometimes. I have conversations with friends who are atheists or strong agnostics, and they raise issues about all the horrible things that happen to people, starving babies, the Holocaust, and all kinds of things. And how could there be a God if, if this kind of thing happens in the universe? And I usually come back with kind of philosophical answers about, well, if you're going to have a relative creation, then there's got to be pairs of opposites. If there's going to be happiness, there's going to be suffering. If there's going to be hot, there's going to be cold and fast and slow and, and so on. And so Shakespeare didn't just write comedies. He wrote tragedies also. There's, there's the whole gamut of experiences that a soul can have in the course of its evolution. But I always kind of come around to the point that in the big picture, if you zoom out large enough, uh, the whole thing is this huge evolutionary machine and all souls, all beings are moving in the direction of enlightenment and will eventually reach it. And that might be pie in the sky or it might be new agey, but that's the way I see it. I probably have quite a similar sense of things. One can't prove it, of course. I don't think there's perhaps individual perfection, but there is a perfection to creation and to the movement, as you say, of evolution. Yeah. If there's a relative realm, where did that come from? From an absolute realm, perhaps. But that absolute realm has to contain everything. There can't be anything external to the absolute. It all has to be part of the picture. It's intrinsic. But you have to be able to also see through that to the divinity that has created it and the understanding of why. That's part, I think, of our purpose, if there's a purpose of life, to see through. And I think when you really see through clearly enough, you realize it's all that divinity. It's all that divinity. So there isn't some mean old God doing stuff to us. 
if anything, God's doing it to himself or herself or itself. <laughs> I saw this great cartoon. It was Adam and Eve were standing there and God was hiding behind a tree. And God had like his hand in the Adam and Eve puppets. And he, he was also doing the snake. And, <laughs> you know, the whole thing was sort of. <laughs> okay. What should we say in conclusion? Gotten a good sense of who you are, what you've been through. And it's, it's really commendable. Although I'm sure it's not the kind of thing where you're taking credit or feeling proud or anything, but I, I commend you on the dedication you've put into this whole lifetime, I guess. And, uh, you know, it's born fruit is an example to people. Well, I think the dedication wasn't mine and the result wasn't mine. So I don't think we can lay claim to those things, but I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, you do have a section in, on your website where you talk about the qualities a student needs to have. And one of them is this arduous, not arduous, what's the word you use? Just sort of a... Well, a sincerity of purpose. Sincerity and focus. If we have a lackadaisical attitude about it, I think we're less likely to have the results we might otherwise have. Yes. It's a precision endeavor. And it's very, very subtle. What you're looking for is something because it is actually part of your experience, usually in the background. It's almost impossible to identify the self, the capital S self. And so in order to discover it, you need enormous focus and the ability to discriminate. And if you're lackadaisical, you're simply not going to have those tools available to you. So it takes a lot of intention to find out what this is all about. Yeah. Okay. So I highly recommend that people read your website. It'll probably only take you a person an hour to read everything you've got on the website. You could turn it into a booklet if you wanted to, but people can find it on the website and that way you can update it more easily. But it's it's a really good overview of things. We sort of touched on the uh, ethical thing. Speaking of Sami Sarvapiyananda again, he often says, you can have ethics without enlightenment, but you can't have enlightenment without ethics. Yes. I know you're a member of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which is something that I and some others started to try to have some influence on the whole ethical values in spiritual teaching world. Ethics for anyone on this path is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Yeah. There is nothing probably more important because the whole armature rests on that. And if there's a distortion, that distortion is going to only grow and become a greater aspect and eventually derail you or derail the ones around you. So getting yourself straight and right and Ken Wilber's wake up, grow up, show up and get it together, you know, his clean up. All of that is essential. And you don't get a pass. I mean, I, I come across instances in which teachers are really screwing around, literally and figuratively. And, um, you know, they say, well, it's just God doing it, or it's just bodies having sensory experiences. There's no doer involved. All kinds of neo-advaita BS. But they end up facing consequences, not only in terms of their reputation, but in terms of what happens to their mental state. It metastasizes. Yeah. The distortion metastasizes and affects the whole being. And then to come back from that is a very difficult and arduous thing. That's why you have to get it right from the beginning and you have to know why you're doing it. And it has to be for the right reasons. You have to be straight for all the right reasons. And it's not some kind of conventional morality or anything like that. It's simply the structure and the armature 
that you carry forward. And if that's not right, the whole thing is going to fall at some point. And we've seen it. We've seen how they fall. So many and times. And it's a question of time before yeah. we see it. And then you see someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, who had an enormously complex life, you know, with so many faculties he was running and institutions he was running and the enormous impact that he had. And he was straight. The guy was straight. So all of this is only bodies and all. It's all bullshit. It's all absolute justification and bullshit. And you will pay a price and the people around you will pay a price. Yeah, there's a quote. I've probably said this 20 times on this show from uh, Padmasambhava. Although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Yeah. By that, he means just absolutely minding your P's and Q's. You don't get a pass no matter how enlightened you are. No, exactly. And I think even more important after the enlightenment business, because you have so much more personal power and so much more confidence. And so your ego can become a very confident ego. So you have to be more precise and more self-aware and self-questioning and self So the razor's edge gets sharper because there's further to fall and you have more ability to fall from a greater height. Yeah. I don't know if it really happens this way, but theoretically the judge gets punished more than the ignorant man who doesn't know the law if the judge breaks the law yes and the same applies to a spiritual teacher or someone yeah, in a position that's what i okay so you mentioned that you uh you ha- we've talked about the website is there a contact form on the website if people want to get in yes, touch with you is. okay is, yeah. plus you have a facebook page and you mentioned that you know you have chats with people do you do this one-on-one do you charge money for it do you have webinars well, I usually do by email because I, I also have a real job. I usually do by email. I sometimes do Zoom if I think it's important. I don't charge. I wanted to provide or offer something that wasn't part of the commercial thing. And I respect that you also do the same thing. I don't ask for donations. I don't have enormous capacity to engage with a huge number of people, obviously, as just one person. I don't do webinars. I don't do anything like that. But I'm happy to engage with people who have questions or want clarification. Sometimes all people need is to know that someone is standing there, just there, who they can refer to or go to or so on. Often all I do is act as a mirror. People almost always know themselves. And so I just remain quiet and wait for them to discover the answers for themselves. And that's the most important thing because me giving answers isn't really that helpful, but people discovering for themselves what they need for themselves is the empowering and the creating of autonomy in that person. I think that's very, very important. Alrighty. There've been over 250 people on the call today watching this. You'll have thousands of views when I put this up. So you may get a bit of an influx of interest. So who knows, maybe you'll end up doing some kind of Zoom thing where you can talk to 10 people at once if you want to. And anyway, people can get in touch and you'll figure out how you're going to deal with it. I'll do the best I can. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, Anne. I'm really glad we did this. I don't know who entered you as a guest suggestion, but I thank maybe you did. But whoever did, I thank them for doing it. You I'm, did. You contacted me. Oh, I contacted you, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> I found out about you, but I'm really glad I did because it's really been say, great um, to know you. I made a comment on one of the Enlightenment forums and you contacted me a year or so ago. And then that was the beginning of our communication. Oh, I've seen you doing these interviews. I, I always appreciate what you're doing and who you are and uh, the incredible thing that you're offering which I think is a benefit to so many people. So thank you for letting me be a part of a small part of that. It's my pleasure to have you on.
who knows if I ever make it to Australia, we'll have a big gathering of all the people I've interviewed in Australia. That would be fantastic. I would love. (laughs) All right. Great. Well, thanks, Anne. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. There's a page on BatGap, which is called Upcoming Interviews under the Future Interviews menu. And you can see who we've got scheduled. And you can also click a little icon on the right and have it put a, a notice in your calendar or your notification thing so that you can tune into these live interviews and be reminded of when they're going to happen. Thanks for listening and watching. Go to the website, batgap.com, explore the menus, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Rick.